Good morning, Harvest Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and my wife, Amy, and I, we've been attending Harvest here for over eight years. In that time, we've been incredibly blessed uh, to be a part of this family, and we regard you as our dearest family. And it's my honor to present to you this morning God's holy scriptures. And we're drawing closer to the conclusion of our study in Isaiah. Chapter, uh, chapters 56, or excuse me, 59 and 60 will be our focus this morning. So whether you have a Bible on a phone or in print, uh, please turn there as we look what Isaiah 59 and 60 has for us. But I want to begin our time uh, with an article I recently read. The title was well-crafted. It immediately caught my eye. It said, Billionaire Mark Lohr wants to build a utopian city based on equitism. Figured it was worth a click. Began to read more. I found that this Mark Lohr man, he had made his billions by investment banking, e-commerce. And he held the belief that what drove much of society's waywardness, what uh, drove our societal issues and shortcomings at the core of mankind's problems was the ever-widening wealth gap. So Lauren envisioned the utopian city Telosa, derived from the ancient Greek word meaning highest purpose. The article quotes Lore saying, I'm trying to create a new model for society where wealth is created in a fair way. The article goes on to say that Lore predicts the land that the city resides on would grow in value and create the ability to generate as much as $50 billion annually from investments. And this money would then be distributed to the citizens, ensuring all had access to the best health care, schools, parks, safe streets, transportation. And Laura calls it equitism, a twist on capitalism. So I went to the website for the city. The homepage showed video renderings of a, a gorgeous city filled with futuristic, earth-friendly transportation flying in the clouds. Citizens were enjoying the perfect balance of live, work, play. And every space was kept in pristine condition. And the website said the city would be built and founded upon the values of openness, fairness, and inclusivity. The original article concludes with this quote by Lore. I don't know if it'll work, but we'll learn a lot. <laughs> I don't know if it will work, but we'll learn a lot. Maybe it can work. Maybe Lore's utopia is possible, a place where people of diverse backgrounds and beliefs can find common ground and their highest purpose, loving and caring for each other in perpetuity, where work is never mundane or wearisome where we're content with the possessions and wealth we are possibly endowed, where law enforcement is unnecessary and all catastrophes are predicted, mitigated, and averted. Maybe it's possible. Maybe we can do it. And if so, what is, what is God's response? What purpose would he serve? We could finally give him that sabbatical. But... What if Telosa is not possible? What if it doesn't work? What if our fallacies, our greed, our selfishness get in the way, undermine the whole goal? What's God's response then? What does God do with a people who thought they didn't need him? A people who thought they could fix themselves, 
and unable to see that the real inhibitor of a right and good society is their own unceasing waywardness and depravity. What does God do with the incessant iniquity of man? And Isaiah 59.1 is, is where we begin to find some answers. Please look there with me as we walk through the text. Verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Isaiah begins in very plain language. The Lord is willing and wanting to save. He is attentive and capable, but your self-induced defilements separate from a willing to save God. Now, the immediate audience here would be Israel, but as we move along through the chapter's context, it will grow to include every believer and really all of mankind. So we're not off the hook here. The your in these opening verses includes all of us here today. And Isaiah does not hold back in identifying who is causing the separation of verse 2 and why. Look at how many times Isaiah uses the word your. Verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation. Your sins have hidden his face. Verse 3, your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue, everything you do and say is defiled with iniquity. That is not a very encouraging way to start a chapter. And Isaiah doesn't stop there. Verse 4 transitions from the personal your language to no one and they language, expressing everyone lives out of iniquity. Verse 4, no one enters suit justly. justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Verse 5 and 6, six use some very graphic imagery. They say they plant the eggs of a poisonous snake. And when someone eats those eggs, they die. And then from their carcass, a viper crawls out. Verse 7 says, Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Verse 8, The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Isaiah makes it very clear. No one lives rightly. Instead, the sum of their thoughts and works is iniquity. And I don't know about you, but when I was reading this, I was reminded of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what is interesting in Romans chapter 3 is prior to that well-known 23rd verse is what Paul, the author of Romans, says starting in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. In these verses, Paul is referencing Psalms 14. Now, Psalms was written by King David. Romans, of course, by Paul and Isaiah by Isaiah. And all three of these authors, writing in vastly different times, understood and are trying to make clear that we are all iniquity-filled rebels of God. All 
meaning not just the, the they's and the them's, but the us's and the we's, the you's and the me's. And I don't know about you, but I initially have a hard time fully accepting that. That apart from God, I am just a sin-filled rebel. That I cause the separation between God and I. And my works are works of iniquity. My thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. And some of you may have no issue with what David and Paul and Isaiah have said. You've lived enough life to know that this is abundantly clear. But I think at the same time, there are many here that there is something inside of us that wants to deny it in full. We want to give ourselves credit for some goodness found in us, some beauty we create, for some righteous thought we have, like it was ours, it originated in us, apart from God. And, we, and then we can pat ourselves on the back. We can look in the mirror and wink at ourselves in approval. We are due the credit. We are due the glory. Point of clarification here, because I would imagine my last statements caused some questions in your mind. Isaiah and scripture are not saying that believer and non-believer alike are utterly depraved. As the late R.C. Sproul would describe as, man is as bad, as corrupt as he possibly could be. Because I think I can, and I'm sure you as well, can think of examples in our own lives and other people's lives where from good intentions we act in what would be commonly regarded as good ways. But even uh, and with that, the scriptures even present some actions of non-believers as good. Now, many th educated theologians have tried to create a framework to get these two realities to fit. One being scripture's stance that none do good, and the other of our experience, where we see and know many things that we would call good. Many of you are probably trying to create a framework right now in your minds of how to somehow bridge these two realities together in this seeming conundrum. And as I've read other scholars, it seems that they try to create a framework based upon a person's status of believer, not believer, what their heart's true intent was, and then a definition of the word good, or create multiple definitions for multiple contexts. And I think this wrestling is good. It's God-honoring. I think there are really good answers out there. But whatever you conclude, let us never think our subjective experience is superior to the preeminence of Scripture. Now, our text this morning, it's not really wanting us to belabor this theological issue. Instead, Isaiah is wanting us to understand, as R.C. Sproul also put so well, our bodies are fallen, our hearts are fallen, our minds are fallen. There's no part of us that escaped the ravages of our sinful human nature. Sin affects our behavior, our thought life, and even our conversation. The whole person is fallen. That is the true extent of our sinfulness when judged by the standard of the norm of God's perfection and holiness. This certainly places us in the appropriate position beneath God. It pulls the rug out from under our attempts to glorify ourselves for the work that is attributed to him. Now, through these verses, Isaiah is not simply trying to level at us like the ultimate put down. He is or rather trying to establish our true actual position prior to displaying the awe of God's response to it. But before doing that, Isaiah, we're going to go deeper into the mire. He speaks in verse 9 to the consequences of our iniquity and what it does in our world. Let's look there together. Verse 9, it begins with therefore, so our therefore summary would be something like, 
because everyone lives out of iniquity. Verse 9, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. And yes, I agree, an awkward verb used there. Isaiah begins this section making clear the societal bedrock tenets of justice and righteousness are gone. In verse 11, he continues, we all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Now, when Isaiah says growl like bears, it caught my eye. I didn't understand what that meant. The word growl, it's the same Hebrew word found in a couple places in Psalms. Psalms 59, the same word is used to describe wild dogs that howl and growl as they sulk through a city looking for something to devour. Same word is used in Psalms 40 to 46 to describe roaring waves that represent overwhelming danger and also to describe a riot that the sinful nations rise up in in sight of the Lord. So the picture here is that our brokenness growls out of us with the rabidness of a dog, the pressure of a drowning wave, and the anger of a global riot. And at the same time, verse 11 tells us that, that we moan. We moan like doves. There is such turbidity and turmoil and exhaustion. Verse 11, we hope for justice. There is none. For salvation, it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. And here in verse 13, Isaiah offers a definition of iniquity. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the, lying, from the heart lying words. And finally, Isaiah concludes with the heartbreaking reality of the ultimate and universal consequences of our rebellion. Verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Doesn't that describe our country today? Justice is turned back. Truth is lacking. Think of the issues that have divided us over the last 18 months, divided our community, sometimes our church. We live in a time of the polarizing, categorizing of every person by what they believe is truth and justice and how it is seen in social issues, medical issues, government issues. Isaiah, you were spot on. Our waywardness results in the upheaval of a right society and existence. So, Mark Lore, e-commerce billionaire, utopia builder, you say, I don't know if it will work. Isaiah knew, and therefore we know with great confidence, your utopia will not work. Save yourself a couple billion and employ the divine knowledge found in scripture. Not only will it save your money, it offers the way to save your soul. And this is what we long for, is it not? 
something or someone to save us. So I think we all have moments in our life where we feel and know there is something deeply wrong with everything. Some of us feel it every day. Others, it comes and goes with the tides of life. The monologue from the red pill, blue pill scene in the movie The Matrix comes to my mind. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life. There's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. But unlike this movie, we know what is wrong. It is the curse of sin. And even the most optimistic of persons will know at some point there is something intrinsically amiss in our world. Everyone who witnesses a crime longs for justice. Everyone who has seen war longs for peace. Everyone who has experienced poverty longs for financial security. It's the moments when your child is laying in a hospital bed in pain and uncertainty, or maybe not your child, but your mother or your husband or you yourself. And you ask yourself, why? Why me? Why us? It's the pains of mental illness, depression, and anxiety, and suicide. It's when after that horrible day at work, your car breaks down on the way home, and once you get there, you find that your AC or furnace is out, and then you flip on the evening news, and it's nothing more than 30 minutes of the consequences of man's sin. And in those moments, I think we individually and collectively can go, hey, you up there? Are you paying attention? Everything's all messed up down here. We long for a savior. We long for things to be made right. So what is God's response to the incessant iniquity of man? What is God's response to our self-induced plight? Isaiah 59, 15. Look there with me. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Our God has not forgotten us. Our God does not sit idly by. He is actively working to restore and redeem. And thank God that despite our own sin creating the consequences we individually and collectively face, he doesn't choose to abandon us. He hasn't abandoned you. He sees your hurt, your fears, your worry. He isn't a delinquent father. He hears every one of your prayers, and not one of your shed tears has escaped his notice. The brokenness you experience, the brokenness of our world, it breaks his heart infinitely more. Are you brokenhearted? The Psalms tell us God is near to you. 
Psalms 55 tells us, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Jesus says in Matthew, come to me, all who are uh, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So God tells us in verses 15 through 19 that he has not forgotten our plight and that he will begin his redemption process by dispensing appropriate judgment. And then in verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Hallelujah. Verse 20 tells us that someone is coming. Someone is going to rescue us. Our kinsman redeemer, as Ruth would say. He is coming for all the longing hearts and souls that would turn from their transgression. And not only a redeemer, but let's look at verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the promise of the new covenant and the promise of the Holy Spirit that was to come. That Holy Spirit, he would actually himself indwell the children of God. The prophet Jeremiah, who would follow after Isaiah, says in chapter 31 of his self-titled book, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We, of course, are now in the time after the new covenant has been established. And we can turn to the Gospels and look and see the life and work of that promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 2, we can see the coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We therefore see and know and experience the ongoing work of God's redemptive plan here, but not yet. So Isaiah 59 is the descent into the abyss of iniquity we have created. But then God's overwhelming and holistic restoration, raising us up and promising the redemption of all things through his righteous judgment, his promise of a redeemer and the Holy Spirit. And chapter 60 gets even better. It is the complete and ultimate redemption of Zion. Let's look there. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. What a stark transition from how chapter 59 began. And from the context of chapter 59, we can start with the assumption that this text is talking about Zion. In verse 14, we're going to be expressly told it is Zion. So Zion is the recipient of these blessings. And the understanding of Zion's audience at that time would have recognized Zion to be the new Jerusalem, the holy city, fully redeemed in the glory to come. 
And this is true, but Zion is also the representation of the dwelling place of all believers of all time. Hebrews 12 describes Zion as the city of the living God, inhabited by angels and all believers of God. So these blessings and glory that will be granted to God, to, by God to Zion, they're about our redeemed home, God's capital of his fully restored kingdom. And I say that because I feel as we move into this chapter, it can feel distant. It's words from a prophet speaking thousands of years ago, halfway around the world. And as we'll see, chapter 60 is prophecy, not yet fulfilled. And we don't know when it will be fulfilled. But it is our heavenly family. It is our home. And therefore, it's a part of every believer's future. And as we move to this chapter, I want to focus on asking the text the question, why? Why are these events happening? Why is Zion being blessed? So after Isaiah, Isaiah's introduction in verses 1 and 2, saying, Rejoice, Zion, God's glory is now upon you. He tells Zion in 3 and 4 to awake and see the incredible reunion of every believer. In verses 5, 6, and 7, he says, Zion will be ecstatic at the abundance of wealth and blessings that will overwhelm her. And then at the end of verse 7, this abundance will be accepted on God's altar. And why? Because it says, I will beautify my beautiful house. So this is all occurring because God is going to use it to glorify himself through the beautifying of his house, his redeemed Zion. Verse 8 tells us that this reunion of believers will be so many that it looks like a flock of birds that appear as a, as a cloud on the horizon. And they will come and rest like doves in the windowsills of Zion. So even though in chapter 59 we were doves, we were mourning doves, we moaned, we're now doves finding refuge in Zion, our true home. In chapter 59, we saw God dispensing his righteous wrath to the coastlands. But here in verse 9, we see that the coastlands find their hope in God. And they are the first witnesses of the ships coming to deliver the blessings to Zion. And why? Verse 9, at the end. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Why? Because God is going to be the one to make you beautiful. Because God. Verse 10 tells us the nations will come to serve Zion. Verse 11, Zion will be an open hub for prosperity. Verse 12, anyone who does not serve Zion will be destroyed. And why? Verse 13, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Why? Because God. We continue, verse 14, anyone who hurt you, they will bow down to you. Verse 15, you once were hated, but will be made majestic forever. Why? The verse says, because I will make it so. And in case you missed it, verse 16 is an exclamation point. So you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob, because God, because God. And as this chapter ends, verse 17, God is going to overwhelm you with the best of the best. Verse 18, there will be no more violence. Verse 19 and 20, God will be your light and your source of glory. 
Why? Verse 21 says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Why? That God might be glorified. These chapters are about God bringing glory to himself and how thankful we should be that our redemptive story is interwoven into the fabric of God's glory. And when we accept the brutal reality of chapter 59, that we are broken, we begin to see the expanse of God's majesty and love for us. God himself is enshrined in glory. It exudes from his presence and it exponentially magnifies itself. That's why Moses' face was shining after he met with God on Mount Sinai, the glory of God reflecting off his face as the sun reflects its glory off the moon. Yet beyond this, and what should cause us to bow down in the most humble of worship, is the juxtaposition of our nature as children of wrath and the choice of God to regenerate our lives, to make us alive together with him. And not only that, but that his favor on you and me, a holy, undeserved people, it continues the emanation of his glory. It is the most beautiful tapestry of God weaving us into his great glory-filled masterpiece of redemption. And this is why it would be so completely inappropriate for any one of us, as I have said in the beginning, to look in the mirror and wink at ourselves in approval as if we are due any credit, as if we are due any glory. Our appropriate position is that of humility, which sometimes every fiber of our being fights against. And I think we all recognize our society does not promote. It's like the commercial I heard on the radio for a new phone. It said, you literally have the world in the palm of your hand. We're all eyes on you, and you show the world how to live this life. Yeah, we sure do love ourselves sometimes. And even when we seek the glory of God, it can be muddied by the power of I. We tell ourselves, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say that. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to help out. I'm going to accomplish. And, and why? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. For the glory of God, for God's glory. That's, that's right. That is why I was doing that. How easy it is for God's glory, that reason for God's glory, to become soiled with the interests of self. Let us not forget the only reason we're included in the conversation of glory is because God in his love and grace has invited us in. It is from that heart attitude that we should walk in love and care for those around us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And if you've ever adjusted the picture on your TV or edited an image or video on a computer, when we humble ourselves, we're turning the contrast up and adjusting the brightness to the right level where we can see with eyes anew the beauty and perfection of our Redeemer. But it's when we try and take the glory due to God 
that we mess up all the levels and the image becomes washed out. So what does God do with the incessant iniquity of man? God redeems upon redeems to and for his glory by his hand in his time. And as I mentioned in my introduction, Telosa is to be a utopian city built upon openness, fairness, and inclusivity. These are the words that they will inscribe upon its gates, its arches, its pillars. Man will cut the words into granite at the base of the statue erected to himself in the city center. Yet, as Isaiah has said, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. If Tolosa is ever built, we will watch firsthand the irony of the situation. Man believing they can create a right and good world, yet unable to see it as they themselves that prevent any hope of that ever becoming a reality. Thank God that amidst this, he sees us. And in verse 17 and 18, we read, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. God has spoken. Zion, his Zion, will be built upon peace, righteousness, salvation, praise. This is what will be inscribed on the gates, arches, and pillars. And there will be no statue in the city center. There will be no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamb, lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the wonder and splendor that awaits every person who has placed their trust in God. It is for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And as Isaiah has told us, it is for those who have turned from transgression. Does that describe you, a person who has turned from transgression, confident that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? And transgression is quite a churchy word, and the Lamb's book of life, well, if you're new to church or some of the language in Scripture, that too sounds a bit odd to the average American ear. They mean this, though. After hearing the claims of Scripture, have you chosen to believe that the only passageway to heaven is through turning your life to Jesus, accepting his free gift of forgiveness and making him Lord over your life? If so, then your name is recorded in heaven. The redemption story of these two chapters is part of your story. But if that doesn't describe you, I would implore you to ask why. And when you have your why, be open to challenging it. Your answer has eternal importance. But if you have turned your life to Jesus, rejoice. Our Savior is coming again. Zion will be fully redeemed. 
and Jesus will establish in full his kingdom, of which we will be his citizens. Isaiah's final words of chapter, chapter 60 remind us, though, I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. And as much as we have all called out for Jesus to return in the last 18 months, he will come in accordance to the Father's perfect timing. And until that time, remember, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God. And whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, you are to be glorified for the redeeming work you have done, for the redeeming work you are doing, and for the redeeming work you have promised to complete. You're a kind and gracious God of which we do not deserve. We deserve your wrath, but I am thankful, as Isaiah has said today, in your favor you had mercy on us. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Jesus, come soon, but until that time, help us to remain devoted to your word, to live out our faith, being a light to our neighbors, our, our coworkers, our friends and family. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.